welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 14th episode, I'll be talking to Joel Turner, writer, podcaster, and producer, about the loving warmth and secret horror of Roald Dahl. Along the way, we'll discuss how to climb Rudy Hill, how no one actually had the Ninja Turtle van, and how when strange things happen, you're going round the twist. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and let you know how you can become a guest on The Math of You. We join this conversation already in progress. So Joel, for those who may not know you, why don't you tell us who you are and what makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake? Ooh, I, I am uh, I'm chronically incapable of describing myself, but I'll, I'll do my best. You know, in terms of the things that I do, I am a sometimes writer and podcaster and pop culture critic. I mainly constrain all of that to uh, Facebook at the moment, but I do like to write uh, longer things now and again for the feed. And I've got a piece that I'm developing with Archer at the moment, which I'm really keen on. I live my everyday life uh, with my partner and young daughter. She, my daughter's nine months old. Everything is a little bit different because of having her around experience the world in different ways so that's been a real real experience so i'm a different person than i was a year ago because of that you certainly are and i've i've known you and, and annie for gosh how long has it been has it been four, four years five years i think something on the order of four years because would have been a, we would have been in trade street so it would have been about the four year mark yeah yeah so i've, no, I've known you guys for four years and and honestly i mean everyone jokes about oh you know you have a baby and everything changes but i think both you and annie have sort of settled in a way and i mean that in the terms of and in terms of like a you know a bubbling liquid as opposed to you know settling as in to, you know, as in giving up and that's the one yeah, yeah. so more, more like like you both seem a bit more centered and kind of together and i think that's great yeah i think it's one of the real positives of having a child like i don't want to be one of those people who's like everyone should have a baby because it's a big commitment and it's a big deal so i understand why people that why there are people who don't feel that it's for them but it definitely has had some really interesting lessons involved with it like i've told this to a lot of people so forgive me if i'm repeating myself to you lucas or anyone who happens to be listening to this but very early on when we bought ripley home my mother came down and stayed with us for a couple of weeks or about 10 days just to help us settle into the new routine which was immensely helpful as my mother almost always is but i remember there was a point where i'm sitting on the couch with ripley you know back when she was little enough that she could just be laying on my legs and look up at us and Annie's sitting next to me and you know she's doing something unrelated and mum's wandering through with a load of laundry because she was a savior and I looked at my mum and I went oh my mum's now a grandmother oh I'm now a parent oh god we're all gonna die mortality is so cool and <laughs> like you just that sense of everyone moving up up to the next you know stage in that cycle uh, just became really clear to me so your Joel is evolving yeah yeah Joel learns parenthood it's moderately effective. <laughs> oh, come on. You're, the thing is, I've met your mother. Your mm. mother's a dynamo. She is. She absolutely is. And is exceptionally is. cool. Uh, in, the, in the space of one car ride, 
I managed to hear all about her amazing job and then recommend she read Sex Criminals. Yeah. Which I don't know. Did she ever take me up on that? I'm going to assume no. I don't think so. I I remember shortly after that, maybe, I I can't remember the time of year, but that was your first proper meeting with my mum. I think you've sort of said brief hellos in like four years and corridors, but. Yeah. And once at Annie's birthday, I think. Oh, yes. And uh, that was a crowd of many people in a very loud room. So I did actually intend to get her. It wasn't long after that, the, the first trade or not the first trade but the first like full collection of sex criminals mm-hmm. was coming out the full uh, one that was in like the pink binding and stuff like that and had all the letters in there and i did go looking at all-star to get it for her as a present but they happened to be out at that stage so i haven't followed that up but uh, maybe at some stage not quite sure like it's it's different for you it's very different having a conversation with your mum going here have a look at this comic that has a whole lot of sex toy jokes <laughs> because chip sadarsky is amazing yeah Although, have you have you been keeping up with sex criminals the latest ones They've they've been a, a little bit patchy. I don't think they've put one out for a couple of months. I'm I'm technically subscribed. Yeah, the, the schedule has slipped like crazy. Yeah, I think they're all working on other things. Like Chips got Chips, How the Duck Run, and Captara. And Captara is Captara ongoing? I didn't follow on with that to be honest. I, I only got the first five because I tend to buy my my comic books in kind of jags. Mm. So I bought like five of those, and I know it was it was still going, but I think it's in a slightly longer schedule. And his Jughead run is over. Yeah, he's just wrapped up Jughead. Because now I think, yeah, I think Ryan Ryan North has taken over on Jughead. Ryan North has taken over on that. Well, yeah, that was that was him on writing duties. Which having having not been super blown away by Captara, I wasn't holding out a lot of hope. So I haven't rushed to his Jughead, but I've been hearing nothing but rave reviews of that. So I will I will get Same, to it. Yeah. See, I, I like Captara a lot. I didn't love his Howard the Duck run just because I find it's, I don't really identify that much with Howard the Duck because I find it's it's kind of infinitely forgettable, any of the stories that go through, because Howard is such a side character. Yeah, I don't have a strong impression of Howard the Duck, and the little bit, there was a crossover with Squirrel Girl, which I do diligently all the time without a doubt read and i found the the curious phrasing the, the weird way that howard speaks his sort of idiom is quite off-putting and I, i'm sure that if i read enough of it it would sink in and i would get it and would work for me but just in brief it wasn't a it, it wasn't the crossover success that i think um, marvel had intended it to be at least as far as i was concerned i still say my favorite crossover in the last maybe five years has been uh chew revival yes it's such a good crossover yeah i've only seen that from the revival side but it's an interesting pairing being that revival is so damn grim and chew is Still a little bit grim, but very silly. Despite being intensely grim, is so much fun and yeah. manages to stay light while being heavy. And that art style really makes everything just seem a little bit wacky. And I think the most fun is that they, they did Chew Revival and Revival Chew. Mm. And so they'll have one issue that starts the story in one style. And the second issue, which flips to Rob Guillory's art and has the other side. Ah. And it's, it's just funny seeing that kind of a real interplay between the two writing styles, character styles, and just a kind of nice two-issue, one-and-done story. Yeah. Well, I realized I just said two-issue, one-and-done. <laughs> well, you know, in, in a digestible amount at the very least. Although I, I was going to say... The re- I, I didn't mean the digestible pun on Chew, but uh, <laughs> I just caught myself after the fact. Oh, man. I was going to say that where I was going with that is that maybe don't give your mum the most recent sex criminals because they get weird. They, they do. They get they get really intense uh, in, in good and interesting ways. Like some of the... I think the there's an issue, it's about 12 or 13, where John is talking about depression and medication for depression and he like is perceiving himself as this grey sexless thing. And it's like, that's really heavy and... It feels very close. Maybe I'm projecting a little bit, but very close mm-hmm. for um, for Matt Fraction. I know he's talked yeah. a lot in the past about medication and mental health, so it seems to come out of a very clear lived experience at the very least. So, 
Not, to, yeah. not, not the light, silly, sort of sexual pun-filled crime comic that it was at the beginning. No, and although, although I do like the fact that they seem to be gathering what is essentially a sexual X-Men. <laughs> yeah, yeah they're, they're, they are building all of that uh, universe a little bit. Kimiko got really upset because she was reading it, and one of the characters is an orderly at an elderly care facility. Yes. And is his, his thing is that he wears an anime mask, a magical girl anime mask, and basically conjures a what is referred to in the text as a cum angel. Yeah, that was that, graphic. That then has tentacles under her skirt and yeah. speaks in this really weird kind of stilted way. And Kimiko was reading it going, this is weird. And then they mentioned the cum angel's name was Kimiko and she kind of dropped the iPad and went, I, I can't. Yeah, I, I do, this. do not blame her for checking out on that. And that is that is a bridge too far. So, see, this is what happens when Joel and I get talking, listeners, is that we get distracted by something, we go off on a comics tangent, and we come on back. We were talking about you. So, uh, coming back to it. My what, preference in general is to start talking about myself and then get away from that as quickly as possible. So, <laughs> so Joel, we've talked a little bit about your mum. Let's talk a little bit about you. Uh, where did you grow up? I grew up, for the most part, you know, my early childhood years were in the wonderfully named Western Sydney suburb of Rooty Hill. For those who are familiar with Eastern Creek Raceway and Australia's Wonderland, all those landmarks from the mid-late 90s, I was a couple of kilometres up the road from those. Rooty Hill as a suburb, it seems weird. The, the hill itself was really unremarkable, so I don't know how it uh, it justified getting a suburb named after it, but maybe they were running a bit short. Maybe people thought Rooty Hill was just too funny to pass up as an option to put in the local driving directions but yeah Rudy hill it was a bit of a, oh, uh, a inter- brief interruption north american go. listeners root is australian slang for bang so uh yeah take of that what you will yeah and and it, all, all the jokes are right there but that doesn't stop them being made constantly and with the same the same jokes over and over again so i have seen a t-shirt that said i climbed Rudy hill yeah that, i think that's why they named the suburb after it that's all i can think of was the low-hanging fruit of that pun so as a suburb it was and I'm sure it continues to be. I haven't been back since I was about 12, but blue collar, working class sort of place, despite the fact like my father, my, the main income drawer of the family at that stage was in sort of white collar business. It was a very blue collar street. Like I remember it being the sort of place where you'd have lots of people wearing listeners outside of Australia, the two competing car brands, Ford and Holden, uh, a very big rivalry in, in car circles. He says with all the confidence of someone who has no understanding of cars or that rivalry. I'm right there with you, buddy. Yeah, yeah. You could you could hear in my voice it's like car things, drive persons, things like that were common. Lots of barefoot children who were improbably dirty for the sort of early '80s somehow managed to find ways to scurry around and get ourselves dirty and scrape need and stuff like that on the street. feels feels a little bit like a, a, an Australian suburban version of Stranger Things, somewhere between Stranger Things and a Tim Winton novel, <laughs> with with none of the mysticism or supernatural elements in either. Excellent. And so within this sort of realm in this free-range Stranger Things kids on bikes kind of realm. What sort of kid were you? I was a little bit more of an adventurous kid than you might think to look at the uh, not-at-all-adventurous adult. I um, did all the traditional kid things of tree climbing and bike riding and stuff like that. And this was definitely of an era where you could just go out the front and play for a while and, you know, go around cul-de-sacs and neighboring streets without too much uh, attention being paid. Not that my parents were negligent in any way, but it was a little bit more open as a time. I hate to I hate to rose-colored glasses the era. It wasn't like it was a, a better time, a happier time. It was just 
the way that it was. So lots of lots of bike riding and running around, more often in the backyard with my little brother, doing various superhero-inspired running abouts and broad gesturing and leaping off small hills in very dynamic and exciting <laughs> ways. But beyond that, probably like that that was a little bit of my outside life, but more in line with what I am as an adult. Massive reader from a very young age, very uh, very soft-spoken and quiet child, even even through early adulthood. So I, I was far more likely to be hiding in my room. I remember my parents at one stage decided that sending me to my room was no longer an appropriate punishment because <laughs> all of my books were there and that's where I hung out anyway. So that, I think, gives you some some insight into preteen Joel. And, and what sort of things do you remember featuring highly? There, there was the obvious, like, apart from the, the reading, there was all the, the wardrobe full of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle toys, which was pretty friggin' sweet in hindsight. Never did get that van. I didn't know anybody that had the turtle van. I remember seeing it in the commercials, but I never know knew anyone that had that. I remember no. there were there were people who had the various repurposed playsets that were clearly built for other things that were then retrofitted as like turtle stuff. Like there was one where you'd put like one of the turtles in a chamber and it would drop this like gooey ooze on it. And I was just old enough to remember that I had seen that as a He-Man toy. And it was now because it was turtles, it was turtle ooze as opposed to just whatever nebulous evil uh, Skeletor ooze it was of course and I hated that because the ooze smelled so bad <laughs> I, yeah I can't imagine it's made with any consideration for for parents or anything like that it's all about the uh the gross out factor for the young kids so the ew I've dropped something sticky on my toys and it never quite came off and it was like n- no one's thought this through no no that, I, I, that sounds like someone's found a warehouse full of he-man toys and, and gone if I get a sticker and put that over the uh, He-Man logo on there, anything with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in at that point in the late 80s and early 90s would have sold in uh, massive batches. So that was just good business sense. I mean, considering, and I, I was speaking with previous guest Craig about this, so considering those late-stage Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle toys where Raphael was playing baseball or Donatello was a cowboy and what? stuff like that, I'd obviously check, checked out well before this. It's, it's getting into like seventh wave stuff where it's like, you'll buy anything if we put a Turtles thing on it. Mm. And so I remember I had a Raphael that was a baseball player where he would twist at the waist and kind of swing a bat. Yeah. I specifically remember there was a board game that I had where it was sort of like, like you'd go around and depending on which square you, you would have to fight a character and it was based on card stats. And there was actually no way to win the game. The mm-hmm. rules actually stopped at a certain point after it tells you how to fight. And so we just made up our own rules that you had to then like run a gauntlet of winning five of these in a row or you go back to the beginning. Mm. And I remember there was a similar game that involved a like tower in the middle of the thing, in the middle of the board rather. And you would drop these little ball bearing turtles that looked like almost like little cars, but it was a turtle like laying on his stomach and it had a ball bearing and it would roll down. And it would have to go down the right chute. And it was like, like looking back, I'm like, this, this had absolutely nothing to do with the, with the property. But we bought it. <laughs> yep. Well, I, I'm sure that I would have been pestering my parents for that as well. I remember you know, the, the turtle van being the, uh, the hazy mirage in the distance of my childhood fantasies. And I never did see that either. I, I think I saw it in, in the, the plasticky flesh at one point as a small child at a at some sort of display and lost it after it for months thereafter but <laughs> I, I wasn't above lusting after toys as, as no child is but i remember being quote unquote friends with another kid at primary school whose name i do not remember but i do clearly recall being friends with him primarily because he had the lion force voltron Ooh. and that was very appealing i think i went over there once played with it and went, all right i've had my fill you are no longer my friend we're done also those voltron toys were, were really heavy I remember that like they were they were those die cast metal ones and it was specifically that I would have like my transformers which were 
all, you know, plastic because, you know, the original diecast Transformers were a very short run. And I would kind of had the Voltron toy and like have to like lift at the like edge of my arm to lift up the Voltron and be like, okay, this, this is just not as good. It's too heavy. Mm-hmm. I feel like if I did the thing where kids do where you kind of knock them together, I would end up breaking something. And I, as a child, that was anathema to me. I never broke my toys. And when friends who did break their toys would come over, I would ask my dad to put the good stuff on the top shelf where no one could reach. <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds familiar. That, that was me protecting my, my prized possessions from my younger brother, uh, who was the uh, tornado of destruction. <laughs> so you mentioned reading, and you did say specifically you wanted to talk about Roald Dahl. So what was your Roald Dahl experience? My Roald Dahl experience, I can't remember the first exposure to it. I remember the first significant experience with it was being very early primary school age. Like I probably would have been in kindergarten or maybe year one, so five, six years old, and getting exposed to, in some way, uh, his book Revolting Rhymes, which is a, a story collection of Roald Dahl-style versions of classic fairy tales, complete with the perfect uh, illustrations for all of those and i remember I, I, I revisited them more recently so it's not like they're burned in my memory the cruelty and the cynicism behind all those even even at a young age i was clearly ready to be uh, done with the treacly <laughs> versions of the fairy tales never really had a great deal of time for any any disney thing except maybe aladdin and the lion king so the cruelty and and gleeful cynicism of revolting rhymes was hugely revolutionary for me it's like oh my god someone else thinks like i do this is wonderful <laughs> And I devoured that, and I do rather feel that that was a turning point in the river of my life, that someone stuck a, a fork in it and split off to one side. <laughs> that became a huge flood of, of Roald Dahl books. I, as I grew up, I read you know, some of the shorter novels like George's Marvelous Medicine. I remember reading that in one night. And without my parents asking for any such presentation, I, you know, sent to bed at usual time, reading reading my book, finished the book in one night, and marched out to the lounge room and presented my parents with an <laughs> with an improvised book review of of George's Marvelous Medicine. So I think that was the point where they decided to get me some longer ones, <laughs> just to minimise those appearances. This made that maybe the most Joel thing you have ever told me. It, see, I feel like it summarises me pretty neatly. <laughs> just the. George's Marvelous Medicine, a study in contrasts. Yeah, that's right. Just all, I wasn't quite getting to like the allegorical context or anything like that, but I was definitely like, I enjoyed this book. It was this me like in my little like flannel pajamas with one sleeve a little bit rolled up because I've been lying on it and <laughs> hair all tussled and yeah, oh, wide-eyed adorable. and optimistic. And you definitely need to hear my thoughts on this book right now, uh, which has not changed uh, from from the age age seven to age seven to early 30s i was about to say preceding your internet presence (laughs) and from there did you get into more world did you start asking for it or what were more just sort of presented on the regular i'm i'm sure that i agitated for them i don't i don't think i was very patient in that regard as a child my appetite for books was quite high neither of my parents asked strictly readers they're not averse to reading and they both definitely read to me a great deal as a child so obviously that was bred into me from an early age but there wasn't much in the way of books around so i would definitely be uh, hounding them for more when i finished one hence i think them getting the longer novels so a lot of the the traditional roald dahl favorites came along later but after george's marvelous medicine we had charlie and the chocolate factory you know james and the giant peach all of those classics i remember with incredible clarity like obviously i know and remember charlie and the chocolate factory in great detail and the accompanying film adaptation is etched into my brain but charlie and the great glass elevator had a really strange fascination for me the the phrase vermicious canids is enough to conjure this strange alien terror like nothing nothing scared me quite like the canids did as a child and to an to an extent as an adult because they're horrible that's a terrifying do, did you ever read 
or see any adaptation of Great Glass Elevator? I haven't seen the adaptation, but I did read it much much later after I had read Charlie and the Chocolate Factory because they, they didn't have the, the Great Glass Elevator at my library. And so I read a lot of the other ones. I, I, I read, I, I think my, my high points were actually not J- Charlie and Chocolate Factory. It was James and the Giant Peach, Matilda, and the BFG were kind of my three spikes that I read a lot of. Those were the ones I actually had, whereas the others I would get out of the library on a regular basis. But I only read it about maybe two years after I'd read Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And the, like the hard left turn into science fiction mm-hmm. from what was essentially fantasy. Yeah. I remember like finding it a little bit kind of striking. So please go tell me about this for Mrs. Knit because all I remember is was it is it Quentin Blake who drew the, the yeah I, I believe that's the name I was trying to remember before when I was talking about revolting mm. rhymes but uh, I think I think you're right Quentin Blake is the uh, I always pe- I always picture people with with stringy hair and perfectly round eyeballs and long noses yeah lots of like sharp scratchy detail quite an evocative artist was Quentin yeah I, th- I think that that evocation was something that he did really well in the case of Great Glass Elevator because in in that traditional dull way he tend to describe these fantastical things in very vague ways and let you project a certain amount into it much like any good writer does Uh, i remember in the illustrations quentin drew them as these sort of like upside down egg shapes and because it's all like sketched in you know just in inks and charcoals it wasn't colored but they had this sort of purplish like bruised bruised quality to them that distressed me and because they could change shape and bend their bodies i think i may be remembering this wrong it's been 20 plus years yeah they they were a nightmarish vision to me they were really as they were supposed to be otherworldly as a child and even so as an adult i didn't have a lot of interaction with sci-fi so this was something i'm gonna have to use the phrase completely outside of my world like it is something completely alien to me so yeah that that really maybe maybe for you because there was that gap in between charlie and and, uh, the chocolate factory in the elevator that you did come with like different experiences, but I read them. I the collection I had was both books in one, and so I I just read smoothly from one into the next. And so it is impoverished uh, early nineteen hundred London, right into space with these monstrous space creatures who are attacking the very fragile glass elevator they're in. So um, it becomes terrifying. Yeah, I'm, I'm just, I have actually just just googled the pictures, and you're right. They're sort of these like upset, sort of top shaped things, sort of scribbly bruisey cloud with these two giant eyes and at one point which i'd completely forgotten they use their bodies to spell out scram yes and it goes from a cute thing to a lovecraftian horror yeah right like a single eye on the end of this like snaky scribbly body yeah it that, that's a horrifying thing and especially for a book that is largely directed at children wow like that's that's an evocative and terrifying image. I'll also point out there is a band called the Vermicious Knids, because of course there is. Of course there is. I would be surprised if there wasn't. <laughs> it's kind of like someone loaned me the first book of The Strain, which became a series, TV series I did not watch. The uh, Guillermo del Toro? Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. The way that the sort of vampirish creatures are described in the early part of that book before they become main characters mm. is that they're sort of like an ink blot. So you see like sort of a shadow and you'd see that shadow move and have form and shape and at the top of that shadow is this like white face like a thumbprint mm. and everything about the face is sharp and everything about the movements is round and the way it's described is it's in a uh, i think it's like a dormitory or like a, a prison or something where everyone's in bed and it's dark but you can just see this white face with this sort of vaguely defined body within the shadows walking along and that freaked me because that's some primal stuff there yeah and yeah looking at the vermicious knids there's some of that going on where it's like 
this is an ill-defined thing, but the eyes are always the same. I think that's a big, big part of it. And I think I sort of see the resonances of, of the Vermicious Canids and like probably because they come from the, the common sort of Lovecraftian ancestor. But something like, that, I know that you have Lucas, but anyone listening, if you've read Lock and Key, the, oh, yes. the, the sort of spirit creatures are trying to come through when they come through into our world and they turn into metal. They have that sort of like Vermicious Canid sort of malleability to them, that sort of focused evil. Yeah, they move, move like spilled ink. Mm. kind of thing yeah Blah. 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 see we both just creeped ourselves out all right well what if, what if we take it away from a creepy thing and go to it like in in the same ballpark like this is a marker of roald Dahl's capacity as a writer you, you mentioned matilda before and i it would be remiss of me not to mention how much and how intensely i identified with matilda as as a young child like i, I said before that i was a sort of soft-spoken child and prone to reading i remember being I, like i i felt like Matilda and being very annoyed at various stages that I wasn't developing the appropriate telekinetic <laughs> The telekinetic powers. Yeah. It's like, where is it? Where is it? I, I was the sort of kid who was beloved by teachers because I am academically inclined. I love studying and I would get my work done and I would finish and I usually had a book under my table and I would just start reading. <laughs> so, you know, I was very popular with, with most teachers because I would get my work done and be a, a you know, quiet and respectful student while everyone else was figuring stuff out. Mat- Matilda was a, a, a big influence on me and I saw a lot of resonances, especially uh, as a kindergartner. My kindergarten teacher, Mrs. Alliburton, was the closest real life analogy to a, a Miss Honey that I can, I can think of. Very beautifully tempered, graceful, considerate sweet woman who i went into early childhood teaching for a little while and that is almost entirely due to her influence she's a great great teacher and a great a great carer for children a great inspirer and i I really loved having her around she was she was wonderful and so i saw a lot of her in miss honey and a lot of miss honey in her and i still remember the one day where she yelled at one of our students in the class oh wow and it was terrifying because you know (laughs) I, I'm, I'm probably misremembering a little bit. I don't think she actually had a British accent, but she had that way of speaking, which was <laughs> certainly in like Rudy Hill, Eastern Creek, which is a fairly, you know, if you're going to summarize the sort of most, most common accent, it's a year, the broader sort of Australian thing where you, everything's a little bit like this, you know, you've got to run down the shop and you just get your smoker in the diary. <laughs> That's, that was most commonly what I experienced. I remember Mrs. Alliburton being far more articulated and careful with her speech. And so she was, to my ears, especially as a child, that sort of almost foreign uh you know but particularly like that classy kind of foreign that graceful mm-hmm. foreignness and i remember her i don't remember the the incident that inspired it but i remember her just once losing her cool and blowing up and yelling at one of the children and it's still like i'm 25 odd years removed from that day and i still remember the, the terror that i felt that wasn't direct like she wasn't angry at me i was completely safe and yet her like that manifestation of terror of that rage in her in someone who was so otherwise soft-spoken oof, it's disconcerting yeah beware the nice ones Yes, they have a deep reserve of rage. <laughs> well, it's funny because you mentioned that earlier that sort of satirical, slightly cruel, and a little bit horrific aspects of Roald Dahl's writing. And it's there in Matilda, too. Oh, yeah. In that they, they actually had to sanitize a little bit of it for the film and uh, later for the musical, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. But stuff like, oh, the punishment at Mrs. Trunchbull's school was to put you in a closet called the Chokey that had nails all on either side of it. And broken glass. And broken glass. And you had to stand perfectly still in the middle of it for hours on end. And uh, that's terrifying. Yeah. that I think that's probably one of the enduring appeals of Roald Dahl, certainly for me, is that ability to balance those, to have someone like Miss Honey versus Miss Trunchbull as structural opposites. Like, they don't, they're not the most detailed of characters in that way, but Miss Trunchbull was a terrifying figure who existed in this world in a way that was almost cartoonish, but just real enough that it, she was 
deeply unsettling. Yeah, and, and this idea that if any kid were to say this to their parents, no one would believe you. And that's that's something where I've actually talked about it with, it with a previous guest where we discussed this idea of, to a kid, the idea of you seeing something objectively real and no one else believing you was a, a deep-seated fear. Mm. Oh, yeah. You start to understand, like when you're old enough to understand what a lie is, to be accused of lying is a hugely insulting thing and, and to not be trusted, especially by you know, parents and other loved ones and other adults who would otherwise trust you. That's it, it's, it shakes you to your core. Yeah, and so when you come home and say that Ms. Trunchbull grabbed a girl by her pigtails and swung her around and threw her over the fence and no one believes you, <laughs> even though you saw it happen, it's like, yeah, that's, just, that's scary. And speaking of scary, I'm going to pivot directly into something that I kind of have to mention because it's your Twitter handle. Okay. But let's let's talk a little bit about the BFG, Joel. Yeah, of course. Again, lot some some horror in that where you've got the other giants literally eating people. Yeah, <laughs> it's it is grim, and I think certainly for me, it's as like I said, it's twenty plus years since I read much of the uh, Dalback catalog. I think I re- revisited the Charlie series when I was in, at uni, but. I think we do tend to look back at these things and wash away a little bit of that grimness and remember that the sweet moments, the sweeter interactions between Sophie and the BFG, and they are they are genuinely sweet. Like I think Roldar has a great eye for for children and the relationships to caring adults, and I think that's what the BFG represented in a lot of ways. But you're right, there are some tr- like truly viscerally upsetting elements to the, the BFG that I have certainly edited from my memory of it. It was only when the movie was, the recent Spielberg adaptation of it was in the air that I started being reminded of all that stuff. I'm like, oh, oh but of course it's rolled down. Why wouldn't there be furious bone chomping? And, and the idea that there is a giant thing, like something straight out of Attack on Titan, that will just reach in your window and eat you and your parents will never know what happened to you. And it's like, no, I, I do not want this. But see, my, my specific memory of the BFG is when he meets the queen yes and all of the various activities they have to do to find a table big enough for him and to find utensils that he can use by getting a garden fork and a spade oh that's right and having to cook up this much food to fill one plate which he eats in one bite and goes hey that was great you know do you have any more and everyone goes and i remember all of that juxtaposition being very funny i've did you see the the spielberg version i, I haven't done myself i haven't either i, I feel like it's something that i'll, I'll maybe ch- check out when it comes on netflix i heard good things about the lead performance and uh, the cg seems to be really strong but a lot of the reviews were mixed to apathetic so i didn't uh, i didn't rush out also having a nine month old or a baby of any age makes movie going <laughs> difficult not impossible but difficult and so you kind of have to prioritize your time absolutely I think the one review I heard was on Pop Culture Happy Hour and Glenn Weldon kind of savaged that movie because there was too many silly words for him. And I'm like, it's, it's real dull, Glenn. Yeah. You know, that, that's It's going to happen. That's a little bit like criticizing a beach for being sandy. It's like, we, we expect this. <laughs> uh, although there was one, there was one other rolled out thing I wanted to mention, which is when I was a, maybe 10, I was like sort of old enough to start looking for my own books at the library rather than what was recommended. And I found The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar and Six More. I have not read that one. Is that one of the older pieces for him? It's sort of a, it's a collection of short stories. And they're clearly meant for older readers. Yeah, sorry, that's what I meant by older. Sorry. Like the main one was about a guy who was essentially a gambler and a cheat and goes to India and learns a special yoga technique that allows him to see through to the other side of cards. Mm. And from that, how he then builds his wealth, gets tired of money, and then at one point looks at himself and sees a tumor inside of himself, and so decides to turn his life to good. Mm. And 
it's it's a strange story. And, and in that same compilation, there is one which I remember to this day, which is called The Swan, which is where young, quiet kid gets viciously bullied by a pair of local bullies with a, an air gun who are out shooting birds. And they force him in a terrible, bullying way to do things like lie on train tracks while the train is coming. And he survives by, like, scooching himself down into the gravel so he's small enough that it passes over him. Mm. And they eventually shoot a swan and tie the wings to his hands and tell him to jump off of a cliff. And basically, it then jumps into magical realism. And he disappears, and his mum then finds him on his front yard with the wings still tied to him, and he sort of collapses. And it's sort of this, is it magical? Is it mundane? And I found the entire story really weird and kind of traumatizing. It, it does sound... It, it sounds intense. It sounds. There was a book that I read last year. I'm going to mangle the title because it's quite a long one, but something to the effect of oh, it, it ends with the name Ava Lavender, it's, and it's a, a magical realist book as well about a girl who is born with wings, like bird wings. Everything else about her and about her world is completely ordinary, but just mm-hmm. the uh, the life that she lives. It's quite beautiful. It's got a little bit of a Louis de Bernier sort of tone to it. Also one of my favorites for magical realism, but doesn't really have any bearing on this conversation except for the fact that there's the wings commonality. But... It's called The Strange and Beautiful Sorrows That's of Ava it. Lavender. That's it. By Leslie Walton. I knew the sorrows were in there. I could not. There's just too many adjectives in there for my memory to retain. But it was a beautiful book. I loved it. One of the things with the Ava Lavender book and with the, the Roald Dahl, like especially as a child, you mentioned Glenn Weldon talking about the, the silly words and such in the BFG and being put off by that. That was absolutely one of the reasons that I adored Roald Dahl, like that, that play with language. It's so fun as a child to hear an adult use silly words and make up phrases. And yet something like vermicious canids has stuck in my memory because it's such an absurd word. Like uh, the articulated K on that, I don't even know if it's meant to be pronounced that way, but that's how I've pronounced it in my head since childhood. I've, I've never heard it not pronounced that way. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad that primary school age child has been vindicated like that. <laughs> but it, like he was such a, a great enthusiast for just silly words and language play. And I know that there have been uh, words that have, he created that crossed over between his more mature works and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I think it's the Snozberries is the more uh, adult connotation if you've read it, some of his grown-up short stories. I, I haven't, but apparently it's... I'm afraid to ask, to be honest. I think I think it's penis. I <laughs> With that setup, I expected something big, and there was the pitch, and then you bunted. Well, thanks, Joe. No, because (laughs) it's 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 disconcerting because the sequence in both book and movie is the lickable wallpaper. And Willy Wonka introducing the lickable wallpaper, and he's like, "The raspberries taste like raspberries, and the and the snozberries taste like snozberries." Oh, yuck! See, see, now now you've you've caught up. Why, Mister Dull? Why? Yeah, I'm, I, I don't know the sequence of those things, and it could it could also just be that as someone who is prone to playing with language in a silly way, he might have just had the same idea occur to him twice, and if it, a sufficient gap in between, might not have made that connection himself. He might have done it on purpose just to be a creepy old dude. It's entirely possible, or a bit of a shit. Yeah, just a bit of a shit. Yeah, or they're just sort of needlessly provocative. But in any case, <laughs> so that was definitely one of the reasons that I kept coming back to to Dahl as a writer was those like the flights of fantasy were were gorgeous and inviting, but the silliness with language is something that I think has persisted in my vocabulary to this day. I think I still attempt to, to like I think in my brain still connects whenever I read Charles Dickens, it always spoonerisms to Dallas Chickens, like yes. in the BFG. <laughs> yeah. And I remember reading it that way and even as a kid that young going, Oh, that's clever because it's both the name of the author and it's a pun and oh it's isn't that good and going and then seeing like books out and I'll be like, ah, oh, Dallas Chickens and looking around and nobody nobody getting it and being like, I, I'm not gonna explain this. I'm not 
difficulty. And, and I was about to say, it was like, do I have anything else to, to say? I'm like, no, I'm just thinking how there was a particular bit in the, the, the movie of the witches. Yeah. That, again, horrifically traumatized me and made me turn the movie off. Oh, God, yeah. Not just the fact that someone tears their face off and it's actually, you know, a horrible monster underneath, but they look normal every other time. Mm. But it's when one of the witches grabs the potion and, like, thinks it's perfume and, like, dabs her wrists with it and very slowly turns into a mouse. Yeah. And then one of the other witches sees her and says, a child, and stomps her. And there's a little spray of blood. And, oh, my God. Yeah. Oh my god! Yeah, if 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 Dahl on the page was unsettling, Dahl on film is uh, nightmare-inducing. Definitely, like I, I think the um, recorded on Channel Seven copy of Ch- uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, uh, sorry, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory that we had would have had stretch marks from being fast-forwarded at the tunnel ride sequence. Uh, as a child too scary because, oh every time too scary it is now my favorite part of the film but as a kid much like the vermicious canids i think it touches on a very primal fear same, same with the witches the fear of adults being duplicitous that you have as a child because you start to realize that not all adults are great or careful or loving of children or in general and so you, things like the witches the undercoating overcoating of misogyny in that ain't great that's something mm. that i think um pops up in a few of dull's books just every now and again which makes it hard to revisit but the ability to get into a child's head and see the things that terrify them and make mm-hmm. them real was something that is a constant in Dahl's work and that sort of sick fascination that I definitely had as a child of coming back to that stuff and prodding at those fears and, and playing with it in his hands felt much safer than than watching the, the video of the boat ride sequence <laughs> and that, that boat ride sequence has been forever tainted by its cover by Marilyn Manson. Oh, see, I, I have heard of that and I have avoided all engagement with that. So I have not had my experience tainted, thank God. Having been friends with a lot of goths in high school in the late 90s, mm. I did get it. I got someone who played it and said, isn't this cool? It's because it came out of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And listen, and I've listened back since. Uh, I actually bought a $9 best of Marilyn Manson just just because it's like it was a three for two I'm like what the hell I'll revisit 17 year old Lucas and see what he thought and yeah there is not a drop of irony in that cover it is self-serious and overblown and uh just like Manson himself in fact yeah I, I can very much imagine like I think I didn't have quite the same sort of interaction with Marilyn Manson as a teenager but I did I think I had a couple of couple of songs on a, a cassette that I'd made. I remember enjoying one or two of them, and uh, but I can rem- I can imagine with great confidence what a you know peak era Marilyn Manson cover of of that would be like. That it would just be so dramatic and completely unaware of itself. Maybe Brian's more a uh, self aware person than I than I think, and he was consciously playing on a lot of that stuff and teasing his audience in some ways with that sort of so thickly laid on kind of presentation. Maybe it's one of those those parodies of a thing that it's such a good parody of a thing it just becomes that thing <laughs> yeah it's, it's if, if it is a parody it's a parody in the same way that the room is a parody of filmmaking uh, <laughs> um, now I, now i want to see tommy Wiseau's long hard road out of hell <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure i can agree with you on wanting to see that but part of me wants to know that it exists and i never have to interact with it oh hi satan <laughs> You're tearing me apart. Look what you've done. Uh, all right, coming back. <laughs> I'm pull pulling back, us pull back. off the Tommy Wiseau track. Host, it, host us away from this tangent. All right. Go. So I'm going to pivot this conversation away from that. And I'm going to say that when I was in year seven, yes. grade seven to those in North America, I had a, I, I was moving around as I did throughout my entire childhood. And in the second half of grade seven, I had a teacher named Miss Jolly. And she had spent some time overseas in Australia. In addition to teaching us netball, 
which at the time was just this weird mutant form of basketball where we could only pivot and take three big steps and wear weird like pinny things that had the positions written on them. It was all very strange. Oh, yeah. In addition to that, she read these weird funny stories out of a book. It was a series of books that she had. And if we were very good, we would get one of those stories at the end of the class if we finished our work early. And these stories, I later learned, were by an author named Paul Jennings, which was later made into a TV series called Around the Twist. And Joel, you mentioned you wanted to talk about Paul Jennings almost immediately when I asked you to be on the show. Yeah, absolutely. And definitely, like, Rollo was the first thing to come to mind when you sort of asked me to be part of this, but Paul Jennings was not far behind. And I think there's a reason that I think of them in the same breath, not just the fact that I was reading them side by side and they would probably have been on the same bedside piles of books, but the fact that they are in a lot of ways very linked. Like, Paul Jennings has a history, I think before he started writing, he was a speech pathologist or something to that effect. So he has a grounding in language and he like Dahl, has a very playful ear for language and silliness and absurdity. And he his his writing is quite lyrical, even having gone back to it as an adult. The prose is actually really well crafted, even if it's not showy. Books for kids often, or book, books targeted at like primary school age children, can be a little bit self-serious or a little bit convenient in the way they describe people, you know, tend to have less dimensions to their characters. But I thought Paul Jennings did a great job, especially for a short story writer, of giving you uh, realistic, believable characters who would then end up in these bizarre circumstances. Much like Dahl, they often had um, moralistic overtones to some of them, but it was just so playful and silly, and I devoured those with such relish. Like, I think just about every like birthday or Christmas or in, in any other occasion that, that merited getting a present, my number one request was a particular book from the, uh, the Paul Jennings series. Like, all of them started with un, and I can't, the, the prefix un, unreal. I've got, I've got them here. I've looked at them, yeah. Oh, good on you doing research. Unreal, unbelievable, uncanny, unbearable, unmentionable uncovered undone etc 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 as they went on and uh, i'll just get for those who haven't read paul jennings these stories are also uh, unquestionably australian yeah and they will use a lot of australian slang the one i remember particularly was the skeleton on the dunny yeah which if you don't know uh, a dunny is a toilet it is now you've learned something there was seem to have been a vogue at a time in the in sort of the early to mid 90s for short stories for sort of older readers that either they would have some sort of twist in them all of the paul jennings stories fit that mold but usually in a really interesting way so is there any in particular that stand out for you joel there's obviously the ones like having rewatched around the twist more recently that sort of embed a few in my memory but there's one i do not remember the name of it but there was a point a couple of years ago where i was working on a, a short story you know trying to develop the idea of it I won't go into detail about the story because it wasn't very good and I didn't end up finishing it, but one of the reasons I didn't end up finishing it was that I realized I was basically at least plagiarizing the core of a Paul Jennings story. Mm -hmm. One I remember, it was a story about, this is obviously very early 90s, and um, the idea of being a punk was very in the air in that sort of, I'm trying to think of a context, that sort of coded, not coded, just silly safety pins and leather jackets kind of idea of what punk was. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, children's TV and media had latched onto that. And so Paul, being a canny businessman, wrote this story about a punk who got bitten by a, a beetle. This strange beetle looked a little bit in the illustration like a... What's that? that like a big big beetle, like really broad, large beetle with the long horn that curves up. Either a rhinoceros beetle or a, a stag beetle. I think it might be a stag beetle. Yeah. Some, some, something in that sort of category. I'm sure your listeners have enough experience with bugs that they can imagine. <laughs> but it was clear like you could see through it you could see its organs stuff like that and he was 
bitten by this bug and as a result of it he also turned clear and you could see through his body and he was horrified this paul jennings loved body horror and really really rode, rode that stuff home so in his terror and you know not being able to figure out how to get back to this you know to normal this punk guy runs off into the into the bush and lives there for years and after many years of this solo lifestyle out in the wilderness is bitten by a, another bug and <laughs> returns to his returns to his normal fleshy self and 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 is like overjoyed he's like oh thank god i can i can rejoin society i can go back runs back and you know, finds his way back to society to see that everyone is clear and he is still the monster <laughs> so obviously paul jennings watched a lot of twilight zone growing up mm-hmm. but uh, uh that you know i i hadn't and so that was that was wonderful for me and that one it was clearly so deeply embedded in my brain that i tried to plagiarize it I think it's one of those things where it's like, I've heard musicians talking about this where you think you come up with a really good line and then you play it for someone else and they go, yes, you in fact wrote that 15 years ago. That is in fact one of your songs. Or it's like a Beatles song or something. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. The classics that are just so part of your consciousness or the way that you think about that medium creeps through sometimes. (laughs) I'm just looking through some of these stories and yes, I do specifically remember one about a kid who was continually beaten in running races by his older brother and then there was a similar competition where they would attempt to pee up into the air to see who could reach yep. the ceiling and he got a nickname that was little squirt and then he yes the rest of the thing is him training and training and training and it's all set up to be the running race and of course it's the peeing distance race and i'm just like that's dumb but it's dumb in a really good way it's it's dumb in the way that you absolutely adore especially when you are between the ages of about six and ten that, that there's a reason that another australian children's author like andy griffiths uh is tremendously successful with the day my bum went psycho series of books like it speaks to speaks to the joys and delights of the human body that you're discovering when you're that age yeah, they're basically designed to be read aloud to someone who is stifling giggles by holding hands over their mouth yeah that's pretty much the way to read it but like a lot of the Paul Jennings stuff was also just I I know the one that I just told was deeply weird but you know there were a lot of a lot of deeply weird ones I remember one I can't remember the title of the story but one where a fox skeleton was buried at the foot of a lemon tree and so by like feeding these lemons to the taxidermied corpse of the fox it gradually came back to life or something like that I can't remember okay all the details now yeah see weird does sound like a terrifying fever dream but yes but then there's also like things like without my pants where one of the well in in the tv series just sort of turned it into an anthology series where it was just centered around a family but the stories in the books were just straight characters you know no clear connections so in in the story without my pants a primary school age teenage boy finds a bone a piece of a foot bone on the beach and you know in that sort of curious child way picks it up and takes it with him realizes when he goes to speak that like every time he speaks he has to finish with the phrase without my pants so he had, you know, obviously circumstances dictate that he's going to school to give a presentation on something and has to repeatedly finish every sentence with without my pants through whatever machination that I don't remember. Discovers that uh, that toe bone was part of a skeleton. He finds a whole skeleton, puts the pants that he finds back on the skeleton and the curse is removed. So <laughs> there's also some just just silly, some wonderfully absurd stuff as well. So, But it makes that perfect stupid kind of sense. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, there's, 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 a, there's a kind of logic there. 
there's there's less logic. There's I can't remember the the title of the story, but there's one about magic underpants. That, oh, wonder pants. Uh, yes, I remember that. Wonder one. pants. Wonder pants. Where where a pair of undies gets popped in the microwave because they're wet and someone like someone needs them, so they pop them in the microwave, and then all of a sudden the wearer is like beating everyone in the uh the, the cross country run, and and then has to like jump in for a swim at the beach with everyone, and the underpants shrink, and he's trapped in the water naked, bereft of these magical powers that he had. And I do oh. I do specifically remember the ending of that involved an inexplicable mouse race that a mouse won oh, yeah. because when the because underpants the shrank, underpants. he put them yeah. on the mouse. And that is, a, that is a sentence that just came out of my mouth. Yep. It's also a <laughs> sentence that Paul Jennings probably made a great deal of money off. <laughs> and it's a lot of fun. Like, there's a reason, like, I think people of my generation or thereabouts, things like Round the Twist are held in a really high esteem because because they were a part of our childhood, but also because... They were, I think it became a part of so many childhoods because they were so silly and sometimes surprisingly dark. And sorry to anyone listening who just got a sudden burst of rain. It's just all of a sudden started to piss down rain in uh, my Melbourne house or outside my Melbourne house. Just changed the tone to a nice sort of fireside dramatic reading <laughs> or something. But no, Paul Jennings stuff, like and Paul Jennings and Roald Dahl, like, one of the many things they had in common was that tendency to go into the, the darker territories that I think a lot of adults imagine kids don't like or will be scared by or will be scarred by in some way. I, for one, and I'm sure that there are a lot of people who are in the same boat, delighted in that stuff and delighted in exploring those fears and anxieties that I now realize as an adult to be a normal part of growing up. But sometimes you don't get adults acknowledging that. And so it's really powerful when they do and tell stories that play with that and are also silly about saying without my pants all the time <laughs> all right joel well i am a little bit mindful of the time so i think we'll wrap that up so if people sure. if people want to find you on the internet where would they go about doing so well they can go a couple of places as you sort of inferred earlier i am on twitter my handle is ginger bfg that's also my handle on instagram if you want to see the, the odd photo the ginger bfg on instagram oh it is you are correct sorry i had had to append the definite article to that but that you can find me there if you want to see photos of Melbourne skies and occasional photos of my baby. I am also a podcaster, one of the podcasts that I'm most frequently releasing at the moment, which is to say every three to four months, is called Highly Recommended for You. Uh, that is a music recommendation podcast that I do with my friend Britt, as she put it on our last episode. It's like Pandora, but with more talking, because everyone loves more talking. We take lists of songs from our friends and listeners and we uh, offer some recommendations for new stuff to check out based on those so Britt and I are putting together a new episode of that as we speak you can find all of that on iTunes uh, or you can find it direct from my website which is also gingerbfg.com very cool and I, I actually got to be one of the earlier recommendation lists on that and I think I gave you like a Goldfrap song and a Jack White song and I forget what the third one it was but I got a whole bunch of stuff back that has continued to be part of my listening and has joined my starred playlist on Spotify, which, by the way, they will give you a Spotify playlist of all the stuff they've recommended, and it's real good. Yeah, well, that's a, we try and do that so you can listen to stuff, and also it makes it available for uh, all of our listeners to chuck in recommendations as well because Britt and I are both musically enthusiastic folks, but even the, uh, the most voracious musical appetite will only get so much in there. So we know that the stuff that we miss, so we put up all of the lists for individual 
individual song choices for each episode we now put those up on our facebook which is just facebook.com slash hrfypod or you can just search for highly recommended for you and you can pop your recommendations in there uh, or you can just pop them directly into the spotify playlist so lots of new music to check out ah see my, my third one was the uh, mountain goats legend of chavo guerrero oh of course it was which i still need to bend your ear about that album at a certain point i'm i know you came and visited sydney but the next time you do i'm going to pin you in a corner and i'm going to tell you about how good it is in relation to pro wrestling and also as an album in itself i definitely need that pro wrestling context i, I enjoy it as a mountain goat thing and maybe may, maybe if you'll have me back again we can do an episode in a few months time purely about the mountain oh goats that would can... be amazing also i did i need you to re-listen to the song animal mask off that album animal mask because okay. it, it, i only learned recently it wasn't just about an older wrestler taking a younger under his wing but was in fact about john's son being born and as oh. such i think you're going to get a lot out of it being a new parent okay well yeah that's that's good and relevant knowledge we'll, we'll just stop it there so we can save it for future reference and in and, and deliver all of that uh, joy to your listeners at a later date maybe absolutely well thank you so much joel as always it is a pleasure to talk to you and i'm glad we were able to keep it mildly on topic without going off onto a million tangents we did pretty well Thank you for having me, Lucas. I appreciate it. You know, this is just in, in spite of my years of podcasting, this is my first guest appearance on a podcast, and I'm incredibly frustrated with everyone else that it's taken this long. But thank, <laughs> thank you for breaking that breaking that down. Excellent. The Radio Voice of Authority signing out. Thank you very much to Joel Turner for his time. For this week's cocktail, Joel specifically requested something with ginger in it, so I've fallen back on an old favorite. This is my Australian variation on a famous Trader Vic's cocktail, The Suffering Bastard. In a shaker full of ice, combine one and a half ounces of botanical gin, half an ounce of bourbon or Southern Comfort if you prefer a sweeter drink, the juice of half a lime, and a handful of mint leaves. Shake vigorously, for 30 seconds until the outside of the vessel frosts over. Take a large sprig of mint, hold it between your palms, and clap sharply twice. Use the bruised mint to rub the inside of a double old-fashioned glass before dropping it in. Strain the cocktail into your prepared glass and top up with some fresh ice. Finally, add three ounces of ginger beer from a freshly opened bottle. Initially invented as a hangover cure, this drink is full of mysteries, magic, and the secret whisperings of the world. Enjoy! View is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every Wednesday, and if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at themathofyou, and you can follow my wacky adventures at lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram, or lokified82 on Snapchat. 
If you have a few dollars laying around, you can directly support the show by going to patreon.com slash lokified and pledging as little as a dollar a month. It helps cut down on the costs of hosting, and I would really, really appreciate it. You can also get some cool rewards like physical mail and shout-outs on the show. This past week, Anna, Goblin Paladin, and Carson all supported the show. Thanks, folks. I think you're aces. I'm still looking for iTunes reviews, so go to the iTunes store of your choice, leave a rating and a review, and I'll read it out on the show. Give you a little shout-out. Next week, it's the long-awaited The Math of Me Mailbag Spectacular, where I answer questions from listeners like you. It's going to be hosted by Margaret H. Willison, so you're guaranteed your daily dose of delightful. Join me, won't you? So, in order to warm up, I have a very important question for you, John. Go for it. Do you dunk biscuits in hot drinks? Do, let's see, this feels like... Have you listened to much Spontaneous Nation? I have not. I, I've listened to it a great deal, especially... I think I told you it was just one of those comfort food things where it was silly, and if it was good, it was great. If it was average, you could tune it out, but it's mm-hmm. just noise. The setup of it is Paul F. Tompkins has a guest. They have a brief conversation based around a question from the previous episode's guest. Uh, or they use it as a spring-off point. And that sort of question is exactly what they do. And it's almost never a literal answer to the question. It's just that that's the start for the conversation. But that part of the thing is supposed to be the setup. They get details from that for the improv, the improv that they do at the end of the episode. It's, it's a structure that I, I know. I've, I've done it in practice where it's like someone tells a story from their life. Yeah. And it has to be a true story. It can't be an interesting story, just something that happened once. And the details of that are, are sort of the starting points for the scene. Yeah, I think I've seen stuff like that in the Ask Cat stuff that I've watched. So yeah. the format's not particularly revolutionary, but over time, the improv has gotten shorter and shorter and the conversations have got longer and longer because they're funny and interesting. And the, like that is a really great open question in that way where you can just run with it in so many different directions. So I will attempt to answer it now, now that I've gone around. I was about, I was the, about to say, the way to get meta on me, Joel. I was actually just interested in biscuits. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, you know me. Uh, I am an occasional biscuit dunker. I don't tend to drink hot drinks that are like I'm definitely. I don't drink anything often enough to do that. Like if it's coffee, I don't dunk anything in my coffee, especially if it's homemade. It's just black, and I don't want to spoil that. I have in the past done the uh, Australian variation of the Tim Tam Slam, which is a you know very specific biscuit dunking action. That's fun, that's neat, but it's not much good with straight black coffee. It doesn't really have the same delicious kick as when you've got a nice milky coffee. You, you feel the Tim Tam crumbling under your fingers as you get this sweet rush of warm milk through the multi chocolate there. So that's, that's the sometimes treat, that one. When I was first drinking coffee, a requirement for that, because I was oh, at the time drinking it with three sugars because I was an idiot child. Oh, we all and, go through that phase, don't worry. Yeah, I would get a shortbread cream with it and always dunk it in the coffee. Okay. And it was usually a, bl- a black coffee with some milk in it and then all that sugar rather than, for example, a latte or something. And I would dunk the shortbread cream in, and it was always racing the clock for how long can you hold it in there so that it emulsifies, but not so much that it suffers structural integrity failure between the cup and your mouth. Yes, this is a critical consideration with the Tim Tam Slam as well. It's this idea, and the thing is, I, I had it happen at work once where someone's like, here, try this biscuit, and I quickly dunked it in my coffee and went to eat it, and it died halfway to my lips and then fell all across my shirt, which was white that day. Yes. And it was an oatmeal biscuit. And it looked like a cat or a baby had just thrown up on me. Yeah, I, I can very much imagine. And that is a real risk with Dunkin' Biscuits, which is probably why I don't do it much. There was actually a revolutionary moment that I had maybe about 10 years ago now where I was, I think it was, it was um, 
I was working at a terrible like outbound call center for a charity and I had like a 30 minute break and I'd already eaten lunch and I decided that I would get a coffee and they were selling like cinnamon, like fresh cinnamon donuts mm. and I'm a sucker for a hot cinnamon donut. Who, who in the right mind isn't? Oh, it's so good. But then out of nowhere, I had this mental image of all of these cartoon police officers dunking a cake donut in coffee. <laughs> yeah. And I went, you know, I've never done that. And if I'm not going to do it now on a rainy day in Surrey Hills, when am I going to do it? So I opened up this, uh, at the time it was a frothy cappuccino, and I dunked this hot cinnamon donut into it, into the hot milk, mm. and took a bite. And oh my God, Joel, it was heaven. Okay. So, so we're talking a cappuccino here. That, that's a, that's a notable thing because my impression of the sort of cop drinking stuff is like the filtered black coffee so made from the finest colombian lighter fluid <laughs> yeah, so, yeah so a, a good experience absolutely like to, to the thing is and the, the thing with the, the cop is it's always a plain cake donut which why would you buy a plain cake donut it's so dumb but yes i would definitely recommend the hot cinnamon donut dunked into like a frothy milk coffee so that's definitely something that i will uh, adventure well, I, would, I call it an adventure that's that's a very <laughs> low bar for adventure i call everything an adventure now because for ripley's sake leaving the house to go get a coffee like i did this morning with her strapped to my chest i call that an adventure because it is an adventure for her see when my little sister was small enough to for adventures like that i would put her in a stroller but then i would drive it off road like i'd go through like empty lots and stuff so that i could like bounce it through things and she would laugh yes so uh and until I nearly like wiped out the front wheel of the stroller uh, and bent it at sort of a 45 degree angle and I went okay no more adventures <laughs> that's the end there <laughs> and I did not tell my stepmother about it mm. did it take long for her to figure that out I honestly don't remember either I've blocked it out or she never noticed okay, well yeah you, you, it seems like you got away with it in that case per- the perfect crime I just looked down and realized that Olive is curled up at my feet. Because oh. we're in the, the part of the house that is his part as opposed to Junior's part. Right. Character is important. Yeah, Junior and Bolin are getting along just fine now because Bolin basically just ignores him. Um, but Olive and Junior, like, kind of get within 30 centimeters of each other and then both puff up and either Junior will bark or Olive will hiss and both will run in opposite directions. It's, yeah, it's a mess. And then Junior will be like laying on the bed when we're getting ready for bed and then forget there's a cat in the house. And then Olive will walk past the door and Junior will go flying off of it, which will scare the hell out of me and cause me to yell at the dog. And he's like, he's just protecting us. I'm like, he knows the cat is there. This is not a surprise to him, or it shouldn't be anyway. Not, not after this long, but... Uh... You know, you've only been living here since March, Junior. 